Well, we're in the book of Philippians. We'll continue there this morning to give our attention to this first chapter as we come to the end of it. You recall that Paul has expressed his deep love for these saints. They're near and dear to him. They have sent representatives to him to encourage him, and he has sent a letter in return, and he's been praying for them. He told them that. It's good to be prayed for. And then he gave a ministry update. You'll remember that he was on house arrest, and he was rejoicing even in his difficult circumstances because they had turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. The gospel was moving with a fuller head of steam because he was imprisoned. And he is rejoicing in that fact, and he tells them that though he would prefer to go and to be with heaven or be with Christ in heaven, he knew that his, his neck was on the line with this upcoming trial. He was on trial for the cause of Christ, for the preaching of the gospel. And though he'd prefer to go to heaven and be with Christ, he was very content to remain on in this life because it would mean the spiritual benefit of the Philippian church. And in verse 27, which is where we find ourselves this morning, he, Paul pivots. He turns away from kind of his autobiographical sketch to the Philippians to urge them to live and to labor in unity. This is a church that is struggling relationally. And that bleeds out that there are fractures in their fellowship as you read through the letter. Let me just point you to a couple of those places. In chapter 2, we had it just read in verses 1 to 4. You'll note, Paul says, look, if there's encouragement in Christ, and there is, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and compassion, why is he talking about these things? Love and affection and compassion and encouragement, fellowship, Paul says he's rejoicing, but he wants his joy to be made complete. Why? How? By being of the same mind and maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, doing nothing from selfishness, nothing from an, from an empty conceit. Why is he writing this to them? Because they're struggling with this. If you look down at verse 14 of chapter 2, Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Remember, when you read things in the context of a letter, you've got to ask the question, why is this being said to them? Well, simply this, they were grumbling and disputing. There, were, there was tension in this congregation. In fact, Paul gets very crystal clear in chapter 4 when he says in verse 2, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Imagine yourself, brothers and sisters, here, hearing this, this letter read to you in public. And, and you're two of the women who are named. Pretty direct. I would say that Yodi and Syntyche are, are, are two of the best-known Philippians, you know what I mean, for, for, for the fact that they were in conflict. And here it is recorded, and Paul says, you, you ladies, you sisters need to figure this out. And you need the help of the church around you to figure this out. 
And so this lack of unity and this grumbling against one another and the disputes and the factions, all of this was, was distracting them. It was, it was minimizing their, their witness and their testimony as a church. So we come back to verse 27, and I would encourage you to read along with me. Paul says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. This is a call to engage in unified, godly, gospel-centered life. And there is a particular emphasis in this text on unity, and we need to keep that in mind. And I want you to see, first of all, that they were to be unified in conduct. They were to be unified in conduct. Verse 27, only conduct yourselves. That's the main verb of this entire section. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is the call to the Philippian church, and it is the call to every true church of the Lord Jesus Christ that we are to conduct ourselves in a particular manner. And as concerned as Paul is for the content of the gospel, that we get that right, he is equally concerned for our conduct in light of the gospel. And you can see it in in almost every church that he he writes to. He exhorted the Ephesians to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which they were called. He commanded the Colossians to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing good fruit in every good work. He implored the Thessalonians, walk in a manner worthy of the God who called you into his own kingdom and glory. And so it is here with the Philippians that he calls them to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. The Christian is to lead a worthy life. You'll notice he begins with a word, only. Don't miss those little words at the beginning of sentences. It's a Greek word that means only, alone, solitary, Paul is saying there's one thing I want you to do. I want you to focus here. Here's the goal. Here's the aim. This is what needs to be at the forefront of your mind. This is the primary concern that Paul has at this point for the Philippians. He narrows their focus. And he says you're to conduct yourselves in a particular way. And this is not the typical word for conduct. In all those other passages I read to you, you heard the word walk, 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 peripateo. It it has to do with a manner of life. Here, 
to the Philippians, he uses a word that does not come through as clearly maybe in English as it could. It expresses the idea really of citizenship. It's the word we get politics or polis, city, metropolis, right? It, it means to be the member of a community or of a city. Paul is in essence saying to the Philippians, I want you to live as upstanding members or citizens of a community. Now what community is he referring to? What does he mean when he encourages them to live as a citizen of a community? Well, again, that was crystal clear in the mind of the Philippians as they heard this word. They understood it intuitively. They knew exactly what he was getting at. Philippi was the chief city in Macedonia, and it was a Roman colony. Rome had spread itself out, and it, 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 it allowed people to be Roman citizens who did not live in Rome. Rome had this close tie to her colonies. It was considered, really, these colonies were a quote-unquote, a bit of Rome on foreign soil. And all of the Philippians and all of their children were in fact considered Roman citizens, and they swelled with pride in that reality. They loved being Roman citizens. They took great pride in that. They were governed under Roman law. They had Roman rights. They owed allegiance and obedience to Rome, and they were proud to be linked to Rome, this very powerful and dominant world empire. And the Philippians treasured their Roman citizenship, and you can see that in Acts chapter 16. We won't take the time to go there, but you can look it up if you wish. And so when Paul here refers to citizenship and all the rights and the privileges and the duties and responsibilities of it, Paul is utilizing that to get them from thinking as citizens of Rome to thinking instead about being citizens of heaven. In fact, in chapter 3 and verse 20, Paul writes this, for our citizenship, and that is our word again, is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The emphasis here is not their Roman citizenship, but their heavenly citizenship. And just as the Philippians had found their identity in being a bit of Rome on foreign soil, they found their identity as Roman citizens, Paul now reminds these in the church that though they live on earth, their citizenship is in fact in heaven, and their identity is to be citizens under the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So Paul is in essence saying, live as a citizen of the kingdom to which you ultimately belong. Live as a worthy citizen of that kingdom. I want you to see yourselves as citizens of heaven and as sons of God and live accordingly, live in the manner Worthy of that. And that's the idea behind the word worthy. It means a manner consistent with. The word actually started originally to talk about something being counterbalanced. 
something in equal value. You put the gospel of Jesus Christ over here on this side of the scale, and over here there should be a life of equal value, equal worth, a life that that demonstrates the immense weight and value and converting power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, there should be no discord between our profession of faith and our expression of it. There should be no distinction between the message that we preach with our lips and the life that we live in light of that gospel. We are to walk our talk. Our conduct is to be consistent with our calling. And we have a heavenly citizenship from God, which is the the highest and greatest citizenship of all. And the people of this dark world should be able to look at the citizens of that kingdom of light and say they're different, they're distinct, they're like their king. Do you treasure the gospel of Jesus Christ? Is it everything to you? What else does your life hang on? It is the very foundation of everything, isn't it? And so we we live in light of that. We live according to that. We live out of that as God has saved us through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and by the power of the indwelling spirit, there is the life of God within us that should be being worked out of us and that not just individually, but here Paul speaks of it corporately. There should be, when people think about this church in Meadow Vista, something about us that ornaments the gospel, something that makes the gospel seen for what it really is. In other words, beloved, with the gospel comes a duty and responsibility to represent the mighty converting power of that gospel, to work out, as Paul will say, what God is working in us for his pleasure. You don't come to Christ for salvation and continue to live as you once did. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? A new creature. And what's happened to the old things? They have passed away. And I I want you to flip with me over to the book of Titus, a passage again that I hope, I know I've gone there so many times, but I want it to be so anchored in us that we just can't forget it. Titus chapter 2, we'll pick up in verse 10. Paul has been giving a series of instructions to, to everyone, really. Older men, older women, younger men, younger women, to bond slaves. And he says at the end of verse 10 that there should be accompanying our works a showing of all good faith so that we would adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect, not in some respects, but that we would adorn the gospel of our God and Savior in every respect. Look at this. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. 
But that grace that brought you salvation, verse 12 says that it comes to you not just to save you, but it also comes to you as a teacher, as a tutor, to instruct you. And what does it instruct us to do? Well, those who are truly saved by the grace of God understand that that same salvation instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing in the, uh, of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us, look at this again, from every lawless deed. You were saved out of sin and unto what? Righteousness. And you have that righteousness positionally before God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But we should also be working out that righteousness in this world, making much of Christ in the eyes of others. He gave himself, Christ did, for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and for this purpose also to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are what? Zealous for good deeds, eager for good works. He says, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority and let no one disregard you. You see, as Christians, we are distinct, we are different, we are not who we once were, praise be to God. And the goodness that has come to us through the Lord Jesus Christ, the goodness that has come to us from God, no one is good but who? God alone. But through faith and the indwelling spirit, brother and sister, you are not who you once were, and there is a power working mightily within you and increasingly within you that is reflective of the the very moral character of God himself. You love the things God loves. You hate the things he hates. And we are careful to engage in good deeds. Why? Because God is careful to engage in good deeds. Peter speaks in similar language when he says that we were saved to declare the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous light. You are a citizen of a new kingdom and one that is characterized not by darkness anymore, but by light. And so he says to us, keep your behavior excellent among non-Christians so that in the thing which they slander you as an evildoer, and understand that. When you do what is right and you speak truth and you do what is good and you stand on the firm foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, on that faith once for all delivered to the saints, the world is not going to see that and respond by applauding. No, they will slander you as an evildoer for that sort of thing. You speak about the fact that there is only one race, the human race, and you will be belittled in this culture. You mention the fact, dogmatically, that there are only two genders, one male and one female. You will be slandered for that. You call marriage between a man 
and a woman for one lifetime, and you will be ridiculed for that. And yet the text tells us that, that the unbeliever in slandering you will on the day of visitation glorify God. That may not be that they glorify God by praising his name, but it magnifies God when light is proven to be light, when goodness is upheld as goodness, when righteousness is declared. Jesus put it this way, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Jesus came, he was the light of the world. Jesus left and he says to us, look, you're lights. I live in you, I shine my light through you. You are to illumine this dark world. And Paul says the same thing, flip back to Philippians chapter 2. If we look at verse 12, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who's at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why? So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Brother, sister, your life, my life, our corporate life must shine the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. It should demonstrate that we have the very life of God in us and that God is among us and that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And we are to live this way, as I said, individually and corporately. And Paul goes on to say, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you. Paul realizes that he may die. Paul also realizes he may still spend more time in prison. Paul also acknowledges that perhaps he'll be able in time to come to the Philippians again. But no matter the case, he wants to hear something of them, and that is that they are living in this way that magnifies the gospel. You remember in your youth, perhaps, as I do, that things got more serious when dad was home. Do you remember that? You were on a little better behavior. You might know this from your workplace, that when the boss is there, people work harder. And Paul says, look, external compulsion shouldn't be the thing that's driving this obedience, this life of good works in you. It shouldn't be because I'm in town he says, that isn't the issue. It should be driven internally by a new heart and a new spirit, a new life of the Holy Spirit that indwells us. And whether I'm there or not, what I want to hear is that you are working in a manner worthy of the gospel, that you have that conduct about your life. Now, what specifically does Paul have in mind when he calls the church to worthy conduct? And he gives us, I think, three very clear characteristics of a life that is worthy of the gospel. 
These three marks really should characterize any individual Christian, but again, these directives are given in the context of an appeal for unity in them. And so the emphasis is really corporate. You could think of it this way. These three things ought to characterize a faithful church. We are together committed to living in a certain way that honors God and the gospel. And what does that way look like? Well, that brings us to our second point. We're not simply united in conduct, but we are united in standing together. Look at verse 27. He says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear that you are, here it is, standing firm in one spirit. You are standing firm in one spirit. That word stand firm is battle language. It's to stand ready. It's to persevere. It is to persist. It is to be immovable. And again, being a Roman polis, the Philippians would be very familiar with the image. They had Roman soldiers there. They understood all of this. It's military language that's used of a battalion of soldiers who stood and held their ground in the midst of assault. They would never leave what they had been given to defend. And that's it. He's speaking really of a defensive posture here. No matter the onslaught, no matter how hot it got, no matter how many missiles were coming and how fast, no matter the threat, they were to be utterly unyielding and to fight to the death. And this again is another one of those images of Paul that he repeats over and over and over again. To the Corinthians, they were called, get this, to be on the alert, to stand firm in the faith, and to act like men and to be strong. To the Galatians, they were called to stand firm in the gospel of grace and not go back again to to legalism. The Ephesians were taught that spiritual warfare is won in large part by what? Standing firm against the schemes of the devil by taking up the full armor of God. Truth and righteousness and the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. You take all of that stuff, you arm yourself, and then you plant your flag and stand firm. The Thessalonians were called to stand firm in the Lord, 1 Thessalonians 3.8, and in the apostles' doctrine, 2 Thessalonians 2.15. And so Paul, even here in the book of of Philippians in chapter 4 and verse 1, then says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord. You see, this has to do, brothers and sisters, with our convictions. We live in a day where there is the idea that there is no truth. We live in the day where certainty about anything is bound to get you uh, canceled. We live in a dark world as light. Therefore, we assert that there is truth, that there is heaven, that there is hell, that there is 
one way to heaven, and that is through the one mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, that apart from him, there is no other way, and you will certainly be judged. We declare dogmatically that Jesus is risen, that he is returning again. We declare dogmatically that God is a judge, and God will condemn the unrighteous and that he is a willing savior of all who would repent and believe. Those things are not up for grabs. We don't present them like they're a good idea. Could I share a few things with you? I'm not saying be a jerk for Jesus, but I am saying that you ought to come to this with a sense that the word of God is in fact the word of God, not the word of man, and we stand on it with both feet and our flag is planted, and we will defend it to death. When it comes to the gospel, we are unmovable. And when scripture is assailed, we stand to defend it. And when the truth is abandoned, we stay the course, in season and out. And when the devil assaults, we relinquish no ground. And don't go John Wayne here. This isn't about you. This is about us. Yes, it's about you in the sense that you are part of us. But God's children stand as an army. And stand we will. And he says in one spirit. And that's not a reference to the Holy Spirit. Though the Holy Spirit, of course, is the agent of our unity. He's speaking here really of a group of believers who have one heart and one soul and one mutual commitment. We stand as one man and we relinquish nothing. There is a mutuality of commitment and a deep devotion and pursuit and purpose and a sense of cohesion and togetherness. There's no division, there's no strife, there's no contention, there's nobody here who separates themselves as an individual. Nobody thinks, well, I'm just kind of in this for me. No, we are one for all and all for one. And Paul is calling for that common commitment to the truth and to Christ and to one another that we would stand firm on the foundation and that we would stand there with our arms locked together. Now I want to say this very clearly and you'll see it as we move forward. This is not simply a defensive posture. I was talking to a particular student ministry pastor the other day and he told me about taking his his youth ministry out to play capture the flag. Most of you have played it at some point and the The object, of course, is for your team to capture the other team's flag. That's why it's called capture the flag, right? Okay, so he took them out of that field, and both teams kind of huddled up, and then they all went out there, and they maintained a defensive posture. They were not going to lose their flag. That's a good goal. But that is not the only goal, right? It's not just to hunker down and to protect what we have, brothers and sisters, we are also striving forward offensively together. So we are united in standing, but we are also, and this is point three, united in striving. We are striving forward for the faith of the gospel. 
Paul again is mixing metaphors as he often does. And like steadfast soldiers, we are to stand firm in the Lord, defending every precious thing that's been entrusted to us. We lead a gospel-worthy life. But at the same time, he turns now to another image, and that is of the the athlete, really of the athletic team, striving in contests. Look again at At verse 27, I hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, and here we go again, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Soon athleo, you can hear it, athletics in there, can't you? It's to compete together, to strive in strenuous effort in cooperation toward a common goal. And some of you are athletes, and some of you Some of you were athletes. Don't kid yourselves. Some of you, (laughs) my shoulder's already sore. I haven't even pitched a ball yet. Some of you were athletes, and you remember what it was like, all the hours that you devoted, all the the dietary restrictions you went through, all the the times that you went to bed at 9 while your friends stayed up till 11, which is probably good anyway. But you remember all of that strife, all the, all the effort, all the sweat, all the blood and the tears that you poured into this thing. That's what Paul has in mind here. That we would, don't miss these words, with one mind, strive together. In other words, we need to stand together as a team it's, it would be a little bit akin to, a, to, to an Olympic team. This group of people, all of whom come from a variety of backgrounds, all of whom are devoted to a variety of different athletic endeavor, but all of whom participate on the same team and toward the same goal, and that is for the, the success of your nation. So it is with us. We are to be working together toward a common goal, toward the advancement of the gospel, striving together for the truth of the faith. You'll note that Paul says that. That's what we're striving for. Do you see it? It says, for the faith of the gospel. I want you to agonize like athletes, strive together as a team for the faith of the gospel. And by faith, he's not speaking there of of Uh, subjective faith but of objective faith, the the truth that has been given to us, like Jude 3, that, that faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. All that we believe, all that we have in the scriptures, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, according to the scriptures alone, that faith that has been given to us, we are striving for that faith. We are striving to make that faith known. We are to strive to protect it and stand, yes, but we are also to strive forward to promote it. We're laboring, aren't we, 
each of us, as you attend Bible studies weekly, as you listen to podcasts weekly, as you come to church on Sunday and as you avail yourself of your brothers and sisters in Christ and you talk about the things of Scripture and the things of the gospel, you are growing in your knowledge and your awareness and your experience of the truth. And then you're striving and disciplining yourself not only to live that truth out, but also to grow in speaking that truth out. Can I take just a second again to ask you to take inventory of your life? When was the last time you spoke of Jesus to anybody? Brothers and sisters, could you say in good conscience, in judgment day honesty, that before God I have been striving to speak of Christ and the gospel? This is what the church is about. And again, if I can go back to the Olympic team, we've each been given an arena in which to complete, compete. Some of you in your office, all of you in some way, shape, or form in your home. Some of you in the public school realm. Some of you in, in a hospital. Some of you in the marketplace and in the public square. All of us have different arenas in which we compete. But there is one thing for sure that I know about you and that you know about me, and that is that each of us is striving with one mind toward a common goal, and that is to see others converted to Christ through the living and preaching of the gospel of Jesus. That's what we're here for. Everything else about the church can happen in heaven. The preaching of the gospel to those who don't know it cannot. You see, we're laboring so that others will believe. We are striving like athletes. And there will be work and there will be sweat and there will be pain and there will be sacrifice. There will be self-denial And Paul guarantees us that there will be difficulty and there will be resistance and that great victory never comes except in the teeth of great exertion. Are we exerting ourselves? Day by day, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, 15, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one the fragrance from death to death, the other a fragrance from life to life. And Paul asks the question, who's sufficient for these things? Who's sufficient to do this? Who can live this way and speak this way? Who can see sinners converted? And the answer to the question is none of us standing alone in our strength. But here's miracle of miracles. (laughs) Alan just testified to it. Didn't that encourage your hearts, by the way? Somebody spoke to someone in jail and almost knocks us over when God, in fact, does what he says he'll do in converting a sinner to Christ. What joy comes to my heart in that? Praise God. But you see, when we stand together on the word, protecting what is precious, and then we stride out offensively, declaring the truth of the gospel together in the strength which he supplies, we live a life that manifests the converting power of the gospel, and then the Lord in his power uses 
our gospel conversation, weak as it is, I know you don't have all the answers, nor do I. I know people propose things that that are perplexing. Sometimes as I'm preaching the gospel to folks, I feel like I'm just banging my head against a stone wall, and I am, unless God breaks that wall down. But he has chosen to use means. Brother, sister, you're it. This isn't my task or somebody else's task. This is our task. Together, one mind, one purpose, one gospel. And the wonder of it is that God is well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Listen, some of you need to get off the sideline and onto the field. Some of you need to don the jersey and get out there, and I know it's terrifying, but you need to get some blood on that jersey and some grass stains. You need to get out and get with it. You need to strive alongside the rest who are out there. And you say to me, I am afraid. And I say to you, Paul anticipated that. Just look at the next verse. Paul says, in no way alarmed by your opponents. We are united in conduct. We are united in standing. We are united in striving together for the gospel. And we are united in suffering. But we are in no way alarmed by our opponents. Paul writes that because he knows. He knows it personally. And he knows that we respond the same way when we think of living this way, a life that's worthy of the gospel of Christ, that there will be opposition. That's the very nature, isn't it, of any athletic endeavor, is that there's somebody on the other side of the ball looking at you, snorting and sweating too. And we are not just standing firm, we are striving forward and that will bring opposition. There will be false teachers who oppose sound doctrine. There will be legalists who will seek to turn us back to a gospel of works. There will be the licentious who seek to take the grace of God and turn it into some some form of, of loving the world and a light view of sin. There will be the divisive in our midst who will gossip and slander, who will seek to tear apart the fabric, the unified fabric of the church. There will be the contentious, and we will face assaults on our unity from within and without, and all of that, brothers and sisters, just comes from within within the church. We haven't even talked about yet the opposition that comes of the world who will revile us and mock us and say all kinds of things falsely on account of Christ. The church has faced all manner of persecutions, hasn't it? From simple belittling to beheading. And Paul says, look, Don't be alarmed. It's a great word. 
It has to do with horses that are skittish. The word has to do with horses that, that are tempted to be startled in battle. They're frightened and they're flighty. They're spooky and they're ready to just burst away in chaos and seeking to, to, to spare themselves. It's very graphic, isn't it? If you know much about horses, you're nodding. I get it. I've seen it. Paul says, don't be like that. Be bold. Buck up. Don't back up. You stand firm and you go forward and do that with composure. Do that with courage. I'm telling you in advance so that you know when it comes you need to stand firm and not be intimidated as Peter says. Don't be alarmed as Paul says. Jesus put it this way. These things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world, you have tribulation. That's the fact of it. But take courage. I have overcome the world. Turn to one other passage with me. Look, look back, go to the left, back to the book of Acts in chapter 4, where we see the example of the early church. Peter and John have just been released, and here, are, here is the church gathered together praying, and we're going to pick up in the middle of their prayer just for time's sake. Look at verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus. They were against him. Whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. In other words, everybody was opposing Christ to do whatever, Lord, your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Okay, this is not out of, out of God's control. Look at this personal note in verse 29. And now, Lord, can't you hear them? Take note of their threats. Everything that came to Christ now is being threatened toward us. Here's Peter and John. They've already been beaten. They've already been, been told to, to shut their mouths and never again to preach in this name. Lord, do you see that these threats, all that came upon the Lord Jesus, is coming our direction? Lord, take note of their threats. But that's not all they prayed. Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants, your slaves, may speak your word with all confidence. Man, what a prayer. And you know how this goes. The apostles are then imprisoned and The church is growing, and then we see a man by the name of Stephen who gets murdered, martyred, stoned in chapter 7. And we come to chapter 8, and we read about this guy named Saul who happens to be writing this very letter of Philippians later in his life. Saul was in hearty agreement with 
putting Stephen to death. And on that day, a great persecution, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem and they were all scattered throughout all the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made a loud lamentation over him, but Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women, and he would put them in prison, and you think, surely that must have silenced the church. Verse 4, and those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Brother and sister, what are we afraid of? Why is speaking the name of Jesus and the glorious gospel that is everything to you, that has changed you at the deepest level, that has taken you from darkness to light, from hell to heaven, why would you withhold that from anybody? We have got to get over this and begin to speak and act as faithful believers who live worthy of the gospel of Christ. Shake off your fears and help us be bold one with the other that we might glorify and honor the Lord. What an encouragement to know that others are laboring, that others are facing their fears, that others are risking ridicule, that others are are putting their job perhaps at, at jeopardy, and yet they're courageous in the face of that, and when we are courageous, when we stand boldly on the truth of the faith that we have received, it makes something crystal clear. It acts as a sign. Look at the last part of verse 28. Paul says that when you do that, when you stand with courage, when you preach boldly in the face of a world that is, that is seeking to to ridicule you, and maybe even to take your life. He says that is a sign of destruction for them. That is the opponents. But of salvation for you, and that too from God. Paul says, look, don't be terrified by any fear. Don't be frightened. Stand firm together. Strive together focused on one goal, continue to promote the gospel in the face of your opponent, and the fact that you don't shrink back, the fact that you don't, you, you don't allow yourself somehow to be silenced by their intimidation. You, you are not like, like the timid ground, ground squirrel that at, at, the, at the sight of a shadow bolts back down into your hole. No, you trust in your God and you stand on the truth. And you're unmovable. And it comes out of a motivation to love Christ and to love the lost. You're just for people. You're not trying to win an argument. I just care enough. I love you enough. that in spite of your unkindness, in spite of the slaps, whether they're figurative or literal, in spite of your 
your opposition and your aggression and your belittling me, your condescending attitude. My friend, I preach to you in tears because you have no idea the wretched end that awaits you if you don't turn to Christ. Can we be there as a church? Are you that grateful for what God has done? Because for them, their opposition is evidence of their destruction. They're perishing. And when you oppose the truth and you resist the gospel and you despise God's people and you persecute the church, it is a sure sign that you are on the wrong side. And the Apostle Paul knew that by experience, didn't he? But beloved, listen. If in the face of the world's opposition, in the face of the world's persecution, you love the truth, you speak the truth, you live the truth, you persevere in the truth, I say to you, Paul says to you by the Spirit in this verse that that very thing is a sign of salvation to you, that you are on the right side of this thing. And your suffering for Christ is proof that the spirit of Christ is within you and that brings conviction to the world and it is something that they seek to distance themselves from. Perseverance in the face of opposition is is really the mark that God is in the life of an individual and in the church. We don't fade away because they put the pressure upon us to silence us. We stand firm. We will not be canceled because you cannot cancel God and you cannot cancel the gospel. Try as you may, but we will stand on it. We will live it. We will declare it because for us to live is Christ and for us to die is gain. But my friend, if you do not know Christ, death will be nothing but loss. We stand for the faith, we strive for the gospel of Christ, we suffer for his sake. This is the mark of a faithful church that glorifies her Lord. As we come to the table, I just want you to transition, if you will, by way of these questions. Who was it who stood firm more than any man who ever walked this planet? Who was it, beloved, who was constantly striving for the faith of the gospel? He was unrelenting in his pursuit of the sinner. Who was it that suffered more than any man has suffered for his faithfulness in gospel ministry? Who is it that manifested ultimate courage in the face of his opponents, unalarmed and full of loving compassion? Was it none other than Jesus Christ himself, our Lord and our head? 
This is nothing more than a call to walk in the footsteps of Christ, remember him as we come to the table, relish in him, thank him, confess your sins to him, and do it with joy. Our Lord, your precious blood, the blood of a spotless lamb, was shed on our behalf, not because we were worthy, but because we were needy. And Lord, not because we had anything to offer, but we had everything to gain. And you have given in your blood freely on our behalf, joyfully. You endured the cross for the joy that was set before you. And Lord, we would, we would be joyful children. We would be children who would bring you joy. So help us. Help us to live in a manner worthy of our calling. Help us to lead exemplary lives, to, to conduct ourselves as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. May it be evident in us as your people that you are in our midst and, Lord, you speak through our mouths and you evidence yourself through our good works and that this world, which is dark, might be lighter because of Foothill Christian Fellowship, because of this church and this place and these believers. Lord, work mightily in our midst as we join arms with the church worldwide to display your glory, for you alone are worthy and we give you praise. Amen.